Hello, and welcome to PDA, Neurodivergence, and the Perpetually Determined Advocate. I am your Perpetually Determined Advocate, Cassandra. This is a bi-weekly podcast dedicated to raising awareness and acceptance of PDA, or Pathological Demand Avoidance, which is a lesser-known part of the autism spectrum. My hope for this podcast is to provide a place of learning and growth, as well as a platform for PDAers, professionals, parents, family members, and others to speak out on this condition, as well as providing resources for those who want to learn more. If you or someone you know would like to come on and use this platform to tell their story, please contact me at perpetuallydeterminedadvocate at gmail.com. Now, let's launch into this episode's topic. I wanted to get into something that I've noticed has a lot of overlap with PDA, and that's imposter syndrome. I, you know, I, I read a lot and watch a lot of um, Harry Thompson's, you know, whether it's the stuff that his lives or, I mean, obviously I've read his book. We've, I've talked about it before, um, but he has imposter syndrome, right? Um, but I've also seen other PDAers um, talk about how they have imposter syndrome as well. And there just seems to be a lot of overlap. So I kind of wanted to get into that. Um, obviously I had to do a bit of research cause this was at, since I'm not a health, uh, mental health professional, I don't have, you know, the expertise here. So, you know, I did some reading, I did, you know, watched some videos and, um, read some articles and, um, tried to enlighten myself as much as I could in order to share that with you. Now, that being said, obviously, I have very surface level um, experience with this in the research that I've done. So I'm really just kind of, again, just trying to provide information for people. Um, and should I make a mistake, which that's obviously a possibility, um, since I'm not a professional here, Please don't hesitate to let me know. I can always put in um, an edit in the episode description that says, you know, I, in the episode I say this, I was incorrect, it's this. Um, So that being said, that out of the way, um, let me kind of dive into this with you guys. So for people who don't know, um, imposter syndrome is defined as the persistent inability to believe that one's success is derived or has been legitimately achieved as a result of one one's own effort or skills. Um, in other words, you kind of feel like any success you have has come to you by sort of blind luck. Um, you, you know, you, you're not really worth your position. You're, you didn't really, you don't really belong somewhere. You're not smart enough. You're not good enough. Those types of things. Like you don't, even when you're successful, you think it's just because, you know, you managed to pull it off, um, not because you actually achieved it. And really, you have a lot of really successful and accomplished people who have imposter syndrome because they, you know, no matter how much they achieve, they just, they can't really internalize those successes and those accomplishments in a proper way, right? Um, this one, the term was kind of first used back in the 70s 
by psychologist Suzanne Imes and uh, Pauline Rose Clance. That's kind of where it began to come into, you know, like the term was coined by them and then that started being something that people looked into. Um, And apparently the estimates are that like 70% of people will experience some form of imposter syndrome at some point in their lives. Um, it's not in the DSM-5, uh, just like PDA, right? Uh, but it, it does seem to be more highly recognized than PDA, or at least that's kind of the impression that I got whenever I was doing the research. Um, I remember when I first started looking for stuff on PDA, you know, the, the stuff out there was kind of scant. Um, imposter syndrome came up with a lot more information. Um, so it does seem to be a little bit more widely recognized, but then it has, you know, PDA was kind of first identified by Elizabeth Newsom, I think, in the 80s. So it has a, a good, you know, decade on it. So that could be part of it as well. Now, there are different types of imposter syndrome. And so I'll kind of list what they are, get into, you know, some of the causes of imposter syndrome. What can you bring this on? What are some of the signs? How do you manage it? You know, just uh, the various different major areas of uh, the topic. So the different types of imposter syndrome, you have one of them is called the superhero, right? Which these are people who tend to overwork themselves to make up for how inadequate they feel, right? Because of this feeling of inadequacy, they feel compelled to take on more than other people around them, whether that's in a relationship, whether that's in a family, whether that's at work or at school. Um, They feel the need in a friend group. They feel the need to shoulder more of the burden um, to, you know, complete more of the tasks in an effort to try to earn their place um, and prove their worth. And I can honestly say whenever I was doing research on this, um, some of this stuff hit a little bit far too close to home for me um, because I noticed uh, whenever I was looking at the different types of it, the different signs of of imposter syndrome, I was like, oh, wow, um, some of this sounds a little bit like me, particularly this part, because um, I'm the kind of person that I have always felt like I have to do more and better than my colleagues. Well, not necessarily better than them, but I have to, you know, do more because they have, you know, higher degrees than I do. And they are so much more accomplished. They've published more. or They've, you know, talk, given more talks or whatever. And I always feel like exceedingly inadequate um, in my professional setting. And it's not because I work with people who treat me that way, but it's really just this... I noticed a lot of of this stuff in myself, so it was kind of eye-opening in that regard. Um, But I also, as I was looking at this stuff, noticed that, you know, a lot of this stuff kind of applies to, um, well, both of my neurodivergent children, honestly. Um, My younger two are both neurodivergent. One is PDA and the other one is uh, ADHD complex type. Um, So I noticed a lot of this in them as well. So it's, um, I can see why those estimates are so high, because it does seem to be something that you see, uh, if you just kind of look at the people around you, you can see some of these qualities in people. 
All right, so that's superhero, now that I've digressed. Um, Bringing it back to center, uh, you also have another type of imposter syndrome, which is called natural genius. And this group tends to put exceedingly high goals on themselves um, because of the fact that they are intelligent. They feel like they need to achieve high, perfect goals. They need to not only achieve those goals, but they need to achieve it the very first time. So if they are not able to accomplish something the first time they try it, then they are crushed because they are supposed to be, you know, because they are an intelligent person, they should be able to do it. And why can't they do it, right? So that's the natural genius. Um, you also have this thing called the type called the expert. Uh, people with the, uh, the expert type of imposter syndrome are always trying to learn more because, which that's not necessarily a bad thing, but they're trying to do this because they're not satisfied with their level of understanding or their level of expertise in their whatever particular field it is. Um, even though they can be highly skilled, um, you know, very accomplished and very, you know, well-read or well-published or whatever the case may be. Even though they have these things, they're still not satisfied with their level. They still don't feel like they are good enough that they've hit that mark. And so they underrate their own expertise, their own ideas, their own um, knowledge. And so they're always trying to uh, find more and improve their position to try to make sure that they're earning their place, right? You also have the perfectionist. And these folks are never satisfied. They always feel that their work could be better. Rather than focus on their own strengths, what they're going to do is they're going to fixate on any mistakes they make, any flaws they have, um, the smallest, most minute things that maybe some people wouldn't notice, the perfectionist is going to notice about themselves. So as you can imagine, right, this is going to lead to high levels of uh, pressure, high levels of anxiety, um, imposter syndrome in general, depending no matter which type it is. Um, And it's, you know, I didn't see anything saying that someone only can have one type. Obviously, you could probably have more than one of these or all of them. Um, But imposter syndrome as a whole Um, no matter what type it is, leads to high levels of anxiety. Um, So you can also see where, right, that would go hand in hand with PDA since it has those high levels of anxiety too. Um, And then the last one is called the soloist. And again, this one hit too close. Um, These people who are uh, the soloist type of imposter syndrome are very individualistic. They prefer to work alone. Their self-worth is stemmed from their productivity, and so they don't want assistance because in order to feel like they aren't inadequate, they have to do it themselves. Um, They're not good at delegating. They're not good at asking for help because that shows weakness, and then if you have to ask someone for help, then clearly they're going to see that you can't do it yourself. Um, that's weakness, that's incompetence, that's, you know, inadequacy. And so you can't do it. You have to work alone. You have to do it by yourself. You have to, no matter how long it takes you, right? Yikes. Um, so those are the different types of imposter syndrome. So where does this come from? What causes imposter syndrome to develop? From what I saw 
um, in the reading that I did, the research that I did, um, there were a few different things that can cause imposter syndrome to develop in a person. One of them is family dynamics, right? Obviously, you know, the impact of what is said and done to children um, can have far-reaching effects, right? Uh, so the research into imposter syndrome has shown that people who were raised in families where the parents were very controlling um, or who placed a high value on success and achievement, right, they were more likely to develop imposter syndrome because, well, if you want your parents, you know, if I want my parents to love me, then I have to make sure that I'm making the good grades or that, you know, I'm succeeding in the, the stuff that they want me to do. I have to get into the school they want me to get into. I have to, you know, um, be president of student government or head cheerleader or, um, you know, the quarterback, whatever it is. Um, people who come from families that put that high value on success um, can really suffer from imposter syndrome. Also, uh, families that have high levels of conflict and low levels of support can also cause that because it's just a very sort of hectic um, Environment, And if you have a parent that is constantly pointing out your flaws and not acknowledging your success um, and not whenever you do falter, not acknowledging the effort that you put into it, the fact that you actually tried, um, that can leave some really lasting damage on um, children. And I mean, I think it should also be noted that that type of environment is not just something found at home in families, right? Um, that environment can also be found in schools. So schools with that same type of putting that high uh, value on achievement, on, you know, putting that high value on success and um, you know, kind of criticizing people when they fall short, those types of environments in schools can also cause that same outcome. So that no matter where it comes from, um, and the same can be said too, like for old, for people that are in, you know, relationships, whether it's friendships or romantic relationships, that kind of, uh, treatment can really take a toll on you. Right. Another cause is sort of like transition, um, People with IS tend to have trouble with transition, and that's probably another um, sort of overlap with ASD and PDA. Well, I mean, like neurodivergence in general, because you can also see difficulty with transitioning in um, some people with ADHD as well. So that idea of entering, whether it's a new school, a new friendship, uh, entering college, entering a new job, uh, that can trigger uh, imposter syndrome as well because of that expert expectation you have um, of pressure to excel, to show that you deserve to have this position over other people, right? That you deserve to be the one here and the people who aren't here, you know, like you have to show you're better than the people you beat out for this position, um, and also when it comes to jobs or um, whatnot, that lack of experience can also be a factor in triggering feelings uh, or, uh, sign or symptoms of imposter syndrome as well, because 
here you are, you are just sort of starting out in this business, you don't have the experience that others do. And so you feel like you have to do more and, and prove that you are capable uh, um, and you're worth being there, right? <clears throat> you also have the personality traits are a part of that too, that kind of play into imposter syndrome developing in a person. So certain personality traits are more prone to imposter syndrome. People with um, low self-efficacy, meaning they have very little belief in their ability to succeed, um, in their ability to, you know, achieve goals um, flawlessly or, you know, without effort. Those, you know, people with that personality trait are more prone to developing imposter syndrome. Perfectionists, right? That one, I think, is kind of fairly obvious. Perfectionists have trouble accepting mistakes. They constantly see flaws. They constantly see, you know, their, their own shortcomings. And so people with the perfectionist personality trait are obviously um, going to be more prone to imposter syndrome. Uh, neuroticism, though, was something that came up a lot in the stuff that I was reading, too. Um, so neuroticism is uh, like a it's a variety of things, but it's it's a trait characterized by um, sadness, moodiness, emotional instability. Um, these are people who tend to experience um, some pretty excessive mood swings, high anxiety, irritability, right? Um, because it's all just a very sort of tumultuous environment inside um, inside their head, and so that can leave someone because they're constantly plagued by these emotions and these feelings that can cause them to be more prone to imposter syndrome. And then you have like social anxiety, right? Social anxiety and imposter syndrome have, they have a lot of overlap. They kind of go hand in hand with one another. So it isn't uncommon to see people with social anxiety disorder who also deal with imposter syndrome, right? Because you have difficulty being in social situations. Um, you really are constantly worried that, say, when you're giving a presentation, you're going to mess it up. So you you want to just get through it as fast as you can so that you can get out of um, everybody's eyesight because you feel like with everybody watching you, they're all going to figure out that you're a complete fraud and that you don't know what you're doing or what you're talking about or anything else. Um, and so it's, it's not uncommon to see them together. However, um, they are not always found together, right? You can have one without the other. Um, but you do see some overlap and it isn't, it isn't unusual for them to sort of go together. And so here are some of the common signs of imposter syndrome, right? If you notice an inability to realistically assess your own competence or skills, your own abilities, right? The things, if you can't realistically look at yourself and say, here are some positive traits. Like if all you do is see negative traits, if all you do is see places where you fall short, that could, you know, that is a potential sign of imposter syndrome. 
Um, the other thing is if you think, if you constantly believe that your success is a product of an external factor like luck or I was just in the right place at the right time or um, it's just because someone better than me didn't try out for the same thing, That's a, that could be a sign of imposter syndrome. Um, berating your own performance, not, you know, only seeing if someone comes up and says, that was a great speech. Oh yeah, but I messed up here, or I said the wrong word here, or I, you know, had to repeat myself or whatever, that kind of thing. Fear that you won't live up to expectations, right? Fear that, okay, well, my brother's the golden child. And so, you know, he was so smart and I'll never be as smart as him. My parents will never see me the same way. I have to do more um, and I have to prove that I'm just as good, right? Or, you know, that's in a family situation. Obviously, there are other situations where that could apply as well. Really, really pushing to overachieve. Overachievers are, you know, like they're people who, I mean, sometimes it's just people who really like to succeed, but overachieving can also be a sign of imposter syndrome, right? Here you are, you're trying to um, prove your worth. Again, it all comes back to that whole trying to prove uh, yourself or to do as much as you can so people don't see you as a fraud because you see yourself as a fraud. Sabotaging your own success and self-doubt, right? Obviously, um, you know, you're trying to achieve something, you're trying to get something done, and you stop and you're like, no, I, you know, because I, I'm not going to be able to do this right, and so I just need to stop before I make a fool out of myself, right? Or um, one of the other ones that came up was like, setting really challenging goals and feeling, um, really disappointed when you fall short, which that kind of relates back to the, um, the type of imposter syndrome that we talked about earlier, right? Uh, the natural genius, like you have these really high goals for yourself, these really high expectations. And when you don't do it the first time, then boom, right? The problem with imposter syndrome um, other than the obvious stuff, is that success or doing well at something doesn't change the idea that you're inadequate. So just because you do manage to complete a task or you do well, that doesn't change how you feel. You still see yourself as inadequate. You still see yourself as, well, I only managed to accomplish it because. And it sets up a really vicious cycle of constant anxiety and worry about how you could mess up the next time or overworking yourself to ensure that no one sees you as incompetent or unworthy. Um, and that's, you know, that's going to apply whether we're talking about a relationship, a job, family, or anything else, people with imposter syndrome also tend to have higher levels of depression from that constant negative opinion of themselves and their inability to value their own accomplishments, right? On their inability to see their own worth. And they tend to be more likely as well, according to uh, the articles, to bottle up their emotions and not really seek help from other people because they don't want to have to ask for that help. They don't want to have to burden someone. They don't want someone to see them as having a weakness, right? You don't want to ask for help whenever you're struggling with feeling 
um, you know, overwhelmed or anxious or sad or any of that because, well, you should be able to take care of this. And because you can't, then you're somehow less than, right? And so they tend to be those who kind of bottle up those emotions and, and don't reach out to other people. So now that you've seen some of the signs, um, I also found a, um, just sort of, if anyone wants it, I'm not like calling, and it says too on this article, like it's not a diagnostic tool, obviously. Um, but there is a, a website that I'll link and it has like a quiz for imposter syndrome traits to see if maybe you need to speak to someone. Because obviously if you occasionally have small levels of self-doubt or, I mean, like a healthy amount of, of self-critique, that's one thing. But if it's excessive, right, you may need to seek some help from a professional who can help you learn to mitigate and manage um, these negative self-opinions because it can lead to high anxiety, which affects your health in so many different ways, right? Um, and then it can also cause that depression, which can lead to a lot of other um, serious um, conditions too. With you know, we all know that the dark roads that depression can take you down, especially parents of PDAers, right? We've seen exactly how dark it can get, and so you know, for people who are dealing with this, making sure that they're managing that negative self-image that is so common with PDA, and you know that that kind of overlaps here with imposter syndrome, I feel like is really important. And so if you think that you do have imposter syndrome, um, if you're the kind of person who agonizes over little mistakes and, you know, is very sensitive to any kind of criticism and sees themselves as a phony, um, you should probably like there are certain things that you can do yourself, but having obviously seeking out, um, help from someone trained in, um, imposter syndrome and, and ha honestly having some idea about PDA as well would be helpful because then they can sort of tailor their approach in the case of a PDA or, um, they can sort of consider the impulsivity and the demand avoidance that is common to PDA in their approach to how to, you know, help manage, um, the, like countering the imposter syndrome. Okay. And also some of the things that you can do yourself. Um, and I, I found several different websites. A lot of them kind of said the same things. Um, so the idea of like reflecting on your accomplishments, speaking to other people, uh, there was one, uh, fairly, uh, comprehensive list on literally uh, an imposter syndrome website, right? It's uh, impostersyndrome.com, and I'll, I'll link it as well. Um, that This is a uh, site done, put together by a woman who is sort of a professional in the field. She speaks about imposter syndrome. Um, she has written about it. Um, she has these 10 steps listed on her website that she always gives whenever she goes and speaks about imposter syndrome as ways to combat it. Um, the first one is break the silence, right? Shame is going to keep a lot of people from sort of talking about how they're feeling. When you feel like talking about it is a weakness and 
is going to cause people to turn on you. It can make you less likely to open up, right? And so knowing that there is a name for what you're dealing with, knowing that it isn't that you are just completely inadequate and talking to people about how you're feeling can help, you know, it, it can be um, really freeing. The other thing is learning to separate your feelings from fact. So you feel like you're inadequate. You feel like you're a phony and you feel like you're never going to be enough. Um, but separating that from the facts, yeah, there's times you're going to feel ridiculous, but that happens to everyone realizing that because you feel that way, sometimes that's not the case. Right. And that comes back to sort of recognizing your accomplishments the other one is like the third um, step that she lists there is recognizing when you should feel fraudulent right so this sense of belonging fosters confidence so if you're one of the only people in the room who look or sound different then you're not going to feel like you fit in you're not going to have that sense of belonging so if you stand out for whatever reason um I remember when I was in college I always felt like the sore thumb because I tended to be a little bit older than the people in my classes um at least in my intro courses right the the core classes where you have a whole bunch of freshmen and there's me and I'm like 25 in a room full of 18 year olds it it, you don't feel like you belong at times, right? You can feel very much like an outsider. And that can cause you to feel um, these fraudulent things. Um, so feeling like you're on the outside can take away from that confidence. You know, that kind of gives you added self or added pressure. And instead of seeing that self-doubt as, you know, some sort of sign that you are falling short, it might just be that you don't feel like you belong. You somehow are apart from the rest of the group, right? You're somehow set apart and you're picking up on that and you're registering it as inadequacy when really it's just kind of being on the outside, right? The next one is accentuate the positive, right? Remembering that um, you are a hard worker that you do have accomplishments and like you're going to make mistakes, right? So yes, you may have fallen short here, but when you do succeed, taking some ownership of that is, is a way to sort of combat some of that imposter syndrome. Um, having a healthier response to failure and making mistakes not seeing it as some sign that you are you're just sort of flawed to your core, right? That, that it doesn't mean that you are somehow less than as a person. You are human. You are going to make mistakes, right? Um, and so approaching that with that in mind, helping you to understand that, yeah, you're going to fall short. Everyone falls short. Um, write the rules, is the next one. So if you've been operating under, um, you know, and these are internal rules, right? The rules you have for yourself and, um, these ideas that I have to do this right. Um, I have to know the answer. I cannot, 
uh, ask for help, all of these things. Change those rules you have for yourself. Make it so that I, it's okay if I don't always have the right answer. It's all, it's okay if I get overwhelmed sometimes and have to ask for help, right? And obviously these, all of these things that I'm listing, all of these steps, like they're easier said than done. And that's kind of where bringing in that external help from either a therapist or a counselor or someone, um, or just having someone to talk to, um, that can help you to sort of reinforce this stuff, um, these are all, they're all sort of rules that, yes, these are ways that you can combat it, but it's, it's easier to say, well, you just need to change the way you think about it, right? <laughs> we can't always do that. Um, developing a new script is another thing that was listed. So becoming aware of, of your internal conversation, right? That voice inside your head, which can be a really ugly voice, right? How many times has that happened? Um, Whatever is triggering those imposter feelings, and change that script. Find a way to silence that voice. Instead of thinking, oh my gosh, they're going to find out that um, I don't know how to do every facet of this. Um, and reminding yourself that everybody kind of starts off not having all the answers. That doesn't make you any less. It doesn't make you any, you know, any sort of imposter. It means that, you know, you haven't gotten to that level yet. Everybody starts somewhere, right? And you don't have to be in a position of expertise right off the bat. Also, visualizing success was another thing that was listed. So, that whole idea of, of vis visualize, like if you have to make a presentation, if you have to um, go in and, um, you know, you're having to be part of a, a discussion with, you know, a professional in your field or whatever, just visualizing yourself succeeding at that, you know, helping to mitigate and manage some of that anxiety involved. Don't go in thinking, I am going to make a mess of this. Go in thinking, I can get this done, right? Just visualizing the, the more, um, positive thing, you know, visualize the positive outcome, not the negative outcome. Um, break the cycle of like constantly sort of seeking and that, that validation outside of yourself. Be able to reward yourself, be able to recognize your success yourself. Um, seeking validation externally is uh, something that people with imposter syndrome tend to do. That's something that came up a lot in the stuff that I was reading as well. Um, learn how to pat yourself on the back, whether it's, you know, I did I, I did really well today, so I'm going to stop and grab myself a coffee or a little treat or whatever. Um, and then too, with, you know, if, if with your PDA or with your kiddo, um, you know, having some sort of rewards in process. Now, praise and reward, not that reward systems work with PDA. I'm not in, in any way sort of trying to suggest that because obviously we know that like star charts and reward systems and, and all of that, that doesn't work with PDAers. Um, but praising effort, not outcome, right? Um, that's something that can really help with PDAers, um, putting the emphasis on the effort, 
um, you know, you tried, right? We know that this is difficult for you and, you know, you made that effort. Um, just sort of calling attention to, in the case of a PDA, or calling attention to the back, because, you know, whenever these kids are constantly getting in trouble or having, you know, they have a meltdown and it causes a problem and there's natural, even if it's just natural consequences, there's a lot of that negative self-image, that self-doubt that kind of floats around in the mind of these PDAers. So praising effort and not outcome can be a way to sort of give reward without rewarding, if that makes any sense at all. Um, but I mean, praise in general can also be problematic with a pda right? Um, it's sort of a fine line that we have to walk as parents of PDAers. You You have to be aware that praise and PDA are tricky bedfellows. There's that, you know, at what point in time does praise stop being helpful? And when does it start becoming an expectation? So you have to try to read the room essentially with your child and, and be able to know when you can praise and when you can't, right? And the other thing too, is with a lot of these steps, for countering imposter syndrome. Not all of these are going to work with PDA because this is a lot of these, as I, you know, read through everything and was noticing, a lot of it is something that can be helpful for someone who's neurotypical, but some of this stuff just isn't going to work with, with someone who is neurodivergent. It's really not. Um, but nonetheless, the last one I thought was kind of funny cause it's like fake it till you make it. Um, Instead of just sort of seeing, you know, winging it, if you will, uh, as a sign that you are somehow inept or inadequate or, or incapable, realize that it's something that sometimes you have to do, right? Sometimes you just have to try, you know, like trial and error, um, and everybody has that. Understand that you're not the only person who's ever had to sort of put that <laughs> put that in place. So you can't always wait until you feel completely uh, confident and completely, um, you know, capable and able to understand and complete a task. Sometimes you just have to try, right? But again, if you're someone who fears transitions, if you're someone who has high levels of anxiety, that can be a really tricky thing to do as well. Um, so but I really liked the, the, the fact that this idea of praising effort and not outcome, I feel like that's, that's something that we kind of have to do with these kiddos, right? Um, and, you know, because my son will very often give me the, no, I'm stupid, I'm stupid, I'm stupid, when he makes a mistake. And it's like, no, 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 you're not. Um, you know, you tried this, it didn't work, right? And that's okay. You tried. And that's all we can do. Just, you know, you attempted or you forgot something and that's okay too. Making sure they're aware that when they make a mistake, people aren't going to turn on them. I think that's one of the biggest fears that I know my son is constantly worried that um, he's going to, you know, he always tells us you should just throw me away. And I think it, because internally he thinks that he deserves to be thrown away. So, you know, that 
that perfectionism is very much there for him. He comes down on himself really hard. Um, and reminding them that no one expects him to be able to override his brain because that's impossible. No one can do that, whether they're neurodivergent or neurotypical, like it's not possible. And reminding kids, these PDA kids, that no one expects them to be able to do that. And people understand that sometimes these things are going to happen and that's okay, right? I think that can go a long way in maybe not preventing imposter syndrome, but at least in helping to mitigate it. But again, I can't stress enough, like having someone who can step in and help probably not when they're younger, because I, even my son's psychiatrist was like, at this age, I don't know how, how great therapy is going to go, but you know, give it a whirl if you want. Um, as they get older though, having someone who can help them work through those feelings of, inadequacy, I think can be really helpful. Um, I am going to cut this one off. This actually ran into probably one of our longest, um, episodes yet, but there was a lot of information to kind of cover. And that again, like I said, it's just surface level. So, um, I have some links, feel free to, um, explore those. If you feel like you need to dive deeper into imposter syndrome. Um, and of course, if I have, completely messed something up, feel free to send me an email and let me know. And I can always, um, put an edit and a retraction of sorts, I guess, in the description. Uh, so that's all for this one. As always, you can email me with any questions, comments, constructive criticism, or concerns at perpetuallydeterminedadvocate at gmail.com. You can also find the podcast on social media. Just search PDA Neurodivergence and the Perpetually Determined Advocate on Facebook or Instagram. And until next time, remember, in a world where you can be anything, be kind.